This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Stephen J. Harper is a professor of law at Northwestern University and the author of four books, a blogger at The Belly of the Beast, and creator of excellent coronavirus timelines begun last March, which caught our attention. If you missed either of his prior talks with us, please go to our website at radioparallax.com. We think they're both worth a listen. And we want to recommend those series of timelines, which can be found at billmoyers.com. Given the bizarre political machinations currently taking place in Washington, which we knew were likely to happen, we asked Stephen Harper to return and help us understand Donald Trump's action. He's qualified to do this, having produced a timeline related to Trump and Russia, currently found on Dan Rather's site, News and Guts, something else we highly recommend. Rest assured, we have plenty to talk about. Let's get started by saying welcome back to Radio Parallax, Stephen Harper. Thank you, Doug. Happy to be with you again. Well, first question, are you relieved by the outcome of this election? Amazingly so, right? (laughs) There was a sense of dread, I think, that everyone had after the 2016 election because of the polls and so forth. So everyone thought, well, yeah, you know, the polls are showing these great margins going into 2020 that show a big Biden win. And lo and behold, at least in, in many respects, the polls were wrong again. But, but I have to tell you, I'm, I, I'm absolutely relieved. I don't know what will happen next. In a way, we're not completely out of the woods because what Trump is doing now is in some ways extraordinarily destructive to whatever President-elect Biden tries to do in his administration. But I'm certainly pleased with this as opposed to what the other outcome could have been. I'm not sure democracy would have survived Trump's second term. It was long predicted that Trump would not accept defeat and would challenge the outcome. And at the moment, the nation is not currently being torn apart by legal battles in Pennsylvania and other states. But the challenges are still being tossed out, and not all of them have been. Do you see some reason to worry yet? My concern for worry is not over the court cases, because at this point, my last count, out of 25 lawsuits and claims filed in various states throughout the country, swing states. Trump's uh, campaign and his allies have prevailed in a grand total of one. That's totally illusory victory because in Pennsylvania, where the uh, Secretary of State, I think it was, had extended by three days the amount of time that mail-in ballots could be returned, it didn't matter because they didn't count those ballots in order to award Trump the state of Pennsylvania, where he's now up by over 80,000 votes anyway. Right. So it's a, it's a completely meaningless victory. And I have to tell you what the rest of it is. It's a dying regime in the flailing death rows of its existence. What he is doing in the process, I just saw, just came out, um, a Monmouth poll said that 77% of, of Trump supporters, people who voted for him, now believe that Biden won as a result of fraud. This is not about winning court cases, because in, in a courtroom you need evidence, you need proof. And that's why Trump is losing case after case after case, and why he is now lead counsel in these matters, his national mastermind in all of this litigation, is Rudy Giuliani, who, by all accounts, based on the reports that I've read, made a complete fool of himself in Pennsylvania uh, when he showed up for his first hearing in what I guess people have said is 30 years as a practicing attorney you know, fumbled over just very basic things. Um, I'm not really worried about the outcome in terms of the courtroom battles. The game has has been to try to create enough confusion so that either, number one, states would not certify results, 
And I think that's always been the strategy, frankly, in the event of a Trump loss. Get enough confusion into the situation so that some states, like Wayne County almost did yesterday, the Republicans in Wayne County refused to certify the results of that county's election, which would have had the effect of essentially disenfranchising an overwhelming minority of of African American voters who who voted for Biden, right. um, and try to try to put the thing in a position where essentially what they achieved was paralysis. They still need three states to pull that off. They're not going to be able to do it because uh, if you did that, if they were able to pull that off, then they and they had three of the swing states where they had then Republican legislatures willing to certify a slate of Trump electors, then they could theoretically set up a competing. Uh, elector slate situation where the case would ultimately be thrown into the House of Representatives. I don't think any of that's going to happen. So in that sense, that worry for me is gone. What I worry about is what it's doing to the fabric of our democracy at the most fundamental level of, of, the, of, of the citizenry, because that's his other play here. To me, with Trump, it's always kind of a three-pronged uh, strategy. The first is survival. He needs a political coup of sorts in order to subvert the election results, stay in office, and avoid a landslide of criminal and civil litigation exposure that's going to haunt him for years and years and years once he's out of the office and can cost him, uh, if not his personal freedom, it's certainly going to cost him a lot of money. The second prong is revenge. So anything he can do to sabotage the Biden administration before it begins, he's going to do, and he is doing it. And then the third prong is some setting himself up for some sort of resurrection. You know, what's he going to do in a, in a post- presidential uh, era, you know, is he going to threaten to run again in 2024? I mean, those, those, but those are a survival, revenge, and, and resurrection, and that's just Trump. You know, that's always what it is. What can he do in the moment to create problems? And in, in the end of the day, it's all about him. Yeah. Unless it's all about Putin, which is the only <laughs> other thing that he's ever placed in a, in, a, in a priority comparable to his own survival. Well, let's talk about some of these legal challenges that are going to hopefully kick in uh, on January 20th. Reading your timeline in great detail, it just it struck me the overwhelming nature again and again and again how you stumbled upon obvious cases of obstruction of justice. Uh, he wasn't impeached for that, oddly enough, but it seems like it's everywhere in your timeline. Is is that the the big fear that he should be having at the moment? I think what he fears more than that, because in order to go after him for obstruction of justice, it would require federal prosecutors to do it. It's, it's a legitimate concern. You know, uh, Robert Mueller, when he issued his report, essentially outlined the dozen or so examples of obstruction of justice or potential obstruction of justice that he looked at, and, and with a number of them found that all of the elements of satisfying the crime of obstruction of justice with respect to the Trump-Russia investigation uh, had been satisfied. But what he also concluded was that as, because Trump was a sitting president, Mueller could not indict him. We can debate for a long time whether that was a correct conclusion or not, but in a sense it doesn't matter because Trump's bigger fear, if he's, if he's thinking rationally about it, is not that, that the Justice Department under uh, President Biden will go after him for obstruction of justice, although they certainly could, and there certainly would be a case there. There's no question based on Mueller's evidence that there's a very solid case against Trump based on obstruction of justice. But the politics and the optics of that, I think, are going to be quite difficult for Biden. That doesn't mean his Justice Department won't do it. I think he's already said he's going to let the prosecutors make their own decisions about cases that they bring and people they charge. But I think the bigger risk for Trump is in the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance, Cy Vance Jr. in New York, because even if Trump were to pardon himself, it would not cover state crimes. There is a very active criminal investigation going on in uh, the state court, uh, Manhattan, 
five answers court involving financial transactions, potential financial fraud, and a number of other things. The other big risk he has, I think, is uh, is in the Southern District of New York, which would be a federal prosecution. But Michael Cohen, his former lawyer, has confirmed that Trump is the person uh, known as in, known forever, I guess, as individual number one, who directed him to violate campaign finance laws to to pay off adult film star Stormy uh, Stormy Daniels. In that sense, he is an unnamed and not yet indicted co-conspirator, but that was all also prior to his prior to his election. So that that's one where you could say that prior to his, his assuming the office of the presidency, he's got a, a legal exposure. The other problems he's going to have are, are civil because he's got the New York Attorney General looking uh, at transactions relating to taxes and the valuation of property and potential fraud there. He's got defamation cases brought by women who claim he was he sexually assaulted him, E. Jean Carroll and Summer Zerbos. Because he called them liars, he's not put them, put them in a position to be able to sue him for defamation. Right. Uh, those cases are going to move forward. All that's going to move forward, and it's going to cost a lot of money. I mean, it's going to cost him a lot of personal money in order to defend himself and to deal with all this stuff. It explains, really, why he has been fighting so hard and why he will, will continue to fight to, to the last breath. To, to try to stay in office, because the statute of limitations on all of these crimes will not have expired on January 20th, 2021. I want to really clarify this issue of, of pardoning himself, because everyone, it's being talked about at great length. You say that he, he can only, as a president, can can pardon himself for federal crimes, but I understand that some people are saying, no, he's a president, he can do what he wants. Two things about that. Number one, it's not even clear that a president can pardon himself. <laughs> okay. But the the validity of the pardon, even for federal crimes, would be the subject of litigation that would make federal prosecution, I think, complicated. I'm not aware of any serious legal thought uh, or, or legal commentator who thinks that a president can pardon himself for state crimes or that any federal pardon can reach uh, state crimes. So I think he's got very big risk, very big exposure in that respect. I'd like to back up a minute into this, something you just you, you made mention of, the, uh, Robert Mueller and his report. Uh, it really failed to get traction on the Russian interference issue, even though he, he talked about, you know, as you said, a dozen examples of where there was obviously some obstruction going on. And this, we subsequently led to the whole matter of Ukraine. It looked as though Russia wasn't going anywhere. Uh, the House maybe decided they still need to throw a log in, in, in his path, and they brought up the issue of, of, of what happened in Ukraine. But can you comment on the degree to which Robert Mueller's report did not exonerate Trump? No question about that. He expressly said that if he could exonerate Trump, he would, uh-huh. and the facts and the law did not allow him to do that. I actually think what happened was that um, in, in terms of the Mueller report, people tend to forget about all this stuff. Um, but I wrote at length about it recently for the American Bar Association in their litigation quarterly. You know, William Barr has functioned as Trump's wingman from the first days that Barr uh, became attorney general. And there's been so much other stuff, is the best way to put it, uh, that's been happening that people lose sight of how all that unfolded, when it unfolded. But weeks before the Mueller report came out, uh, Barr issued a, a three- or four-page quote-unquote summary, purported summary of the report that was at best misleading and, it, frankly, it, in my view, just flat-out uh, r- wrong and, and false and, and, in a sense, a, a fraud on the public. 
but it set the tone because of, you know, through selective excerpt from the report and his own spin about what was or wasn't the subject of the report and what was or what was or wasn't the conclusion of the report, it gained traction before anyone else could even read the Mueller report and scrutinize whether what William Barr was saying was true. How did it fit? It's the line, you know, the a lie travels halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its boots. You give somebody like William Barr the, the megaphone and a three-week head start on setting the frame within which people should think about or dismiss or ignore uh, Mueller's report, you've really set the tone for the thing. But it, but it was so out of line that Mueller himself, uh, when the summary came out, and this, again, is before the public had seen the report, because he had to submit it to Barr first for review, even Mueller, um, immediately after Barr issued his report, said, you know, what you've issued is, is essentially misleading and paints a false picture of, of what we did and how we did it and what our conclusions were. But, you know, all that came out weeks later, and by then, the Trump no collusion, no obstruction, total exoneration tweet train, you know, was on the tracks and rolling, and all of his, all of his aiders and abettors in Congress and the media were, were climbing aboard and, and stoking the fires. It got lost. And then when Mueller finally testified, it, it sort of landed with, with something of a thud, frankly. And people were surprised that Mueller wasn't more forceful or, uh, I don't know, something about the, the demeanor troubled them. And the initial poisoning, though, I think was the key. When, if you poison it before it even gets out of the box, uh, which is what William Barr did, and then you continue to beat that drum for three or four weeks with the kind of megaphone that Trump has and that, and that Barr was able to exploit, it never really gets traction. But the way to think about Trump-Russia really is by viewing Ukraine. I don't think Ukraine was really throwing, throwing, trying to throw a log in front of Trump. I think Ukraine was, in a sense, an unbelievably standalone uh, demonstration of Trump's win-at-any-cost mentality, even if it undermines the very foundations of, uh, of, a, of a free election and, and various laws to do it. But that's really just a continuation, in that sense, of the Trump-Russia thing, which is anything to win. What I worked on for uh, over time to develop a series of facts as they were unfolding about what was happening in Russia. But it's all of a piece. And, and the piece is Trump winning at any cost. And, and the reason that Ukraine happened is because Trump was trying to get Ukraine to, to, to muddy up Biden because Trump, and we now know, was never able to figure out a way to run against Biden in a way that he thought would win. And so that's what that whole situation was about. And if you'd had more than Mitt Romney as a courageous Republican willing to stand up for the rule of law in the U.S. Senate, Trump wouldn't have been president when the pandemic hit. Then you're really talking about lives saved, right? Wow. Not occurring to me at this moment. Oh, my God. Three votes in the Senate is what put Trump in charge of what has now become a quarter of a million American deaths. We're speaking with Stephen J. Harper, professor of law at Northwestern University, about the legal issues swirling around Donald J. Trump. I would like to focus on something that, that plays a prominent role in your timeline and in, and in the whole story of, of Russia Gate. That is the Roger Stone Julian Assange link. That WikiLeaks data dump in October was quite critical to, uh, to, to getting Donald Trump elected. A lot of bright people I know take the view that uh, they're not sure those stolen Democratic files were hacked by the Russians. And, and I know that I have a hard time with that, and I think you must too. But I want to just take a minute to say, what, what do you say to those people who find that evidence not convincing? Then there's nothing I can say that will convince them. <laughs> That's what I say to them, because it's true. Every intelligence agency, every factual 
uh, organ that the United States has that can look at that issue has come to the same conclusion, um, and that includes uh, Robert Mueller and his report. Russia was at the center of this. Russia was engaged in a systematic effort to hack uh, the 2016 election. They succeeded, and they used WikiLeaks as the principal vehicle through which to, to disseminate those hacked materials that came out over the course of the 2016 election cycle, drip, 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 and infected the body politic in a way that clearly was designed to help Trump win. Was it significant? Did it swing votes? Did it make Trump the president of the United States? No one will ever really be able to answer that question, although some statisticians have concluded that it, it seems obvious that it did. Remember, you're talking about 77,000 votes out of 135, 138 million cast. It probably did. 77,000 votes in three states. Uh, and Trump didn't even have a plurality of the votes. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by almost 3 million voters. I guess what I say is, you know, I'm, I don't know on what basis you could believe anything other than that Russia hacked those computers in 2016 and that WikiLeaks was, was absolutely at the center of it. And if you look at the timeline of, of what happened as it related to Roger Stone, who throughout the summer of 2016 was boasting about his contacts with WikiLeaks, his communications with Julian Assange, and then uh, later backtracked and then later uh, lied to Congress about a, a number of different things that got him convicted and, and almost jailed, while at the same time proclaiming, I will never turn against this president. Uh, and lo and behold, look who gets it, commutation. There's a little sidelight in your timeline that was it's quite interesting. Uh, it's, it seems pretty clear that Dana Rohrbacher, a member of Congress who's quite pro-Trump, acting for Trump, evidently offered Assange a pardon if he'd say the stolen DNC documents were not given to him by Russia. That, that should have got more attention. There are a lot of things that should have gotten more attention. <laughs> well, one of the things that, you know, Dana Rohrbacher, who is no longer, he was, he was ousted in the 2018 election cycle, properly so, but he was referred to on Capitol Hill as Putin's congressman in some circles. And, you know, there, there are lots of things like that that could and should have gotten a lot of play. And in fact, many of those things, as factual matters, are documented thoroughly in, in Robert Mueller's multi-volume, you know, two-volume report on Trump-Russia conspiracy, potential conspiracy, and obstruction of justice. You have to stand in front of a wall with string and photographs and try to link everything up together in order to really see how all of the, the things interact with each other. There is a thread that runs through it, and the thread is a pretty simple one. Uh, Putin wanted Trump to win, and if he couldn't get him, if he couldn't win, at least he, he would be in a position, hopefully, where Trump would be somebody who would sow chaos and internal division, which has obviously been one of Putin's main goals for a long, long time with respect to the United States. Putin was personally involved in the effort to, to systematically interfere with the American election in 2016. The third dot is pretty easy to, to link up. You know, look at Trump's words and deeds with respect to Vladimir Putin during Trump's entire term in office. He can criticize every American. He can criticize every, every actor uh, who says a cross word against him. He can go after everybody, uh, Republicans, Demo if they cross him, Democrats, the people who give speeches at the Academy Awards ceremonies. He has yet to say a single cross word about Vladimir Putin. So what's that about? And now what we're seeing in the dying days of, of the Trump administration, if you were Vladimir Putin and you had a wish list of things that you would like accomplished before Trump left office, one of them would be maximizing doubt 
and anxiety about the validity of democracy in America. Well, check that one off. You would say sowing divisions, you know, really deepening the, the divisions that exist in the United States. Check that one off. You would say how about making the Middle East and America's presence in the Middle East less secure? Check. How about undermining NATO and having our staunchest allies who have been the, the, the reason, frankly, that the Soviet Union uh, ultimately disintegrated. It was the strength of the Western alliance that, that made that possible. Look at what Trump has done, you know, just in, in recent days with respect to Afghanistan, with respect to alienating uh, NATO allies, uh, with respect to sowing divisions in the United States, and with respect to, frankly, frivolous litigation that is aimed at the very heart of democracy. Is there integrity to the American voting system? Is now, at least if you're one of uh, one of Trump's voters, 77% of you think that Biden won because of fraud. And there's right. not a single shred of evidence in any of these cases right. that has suggested it. Good, even Giuliani has admitted in court that, it, that he wasn't claiming fraud in connection with the election. Do we need a special prosecutor to get to the bottom of all this? Well, we had one. You know, we had one with Robert Mueller. At this point, it's no longer a special prosecutor, because if Trump's out of office, you're back to the, the regular systems. You're left with people like Cy Vance, who I think are probably in a position when they get tax returns and all the other information that they're going to get. Ultimately, they will get this stuff from Trump to, to see what, what, if any, connections there are between Trump's you know, financial situation and, and, and Putin, because you know, we still don't really know the answer to that. We know what he was trying to do. We know he was trying to build a Trump Hotel Moscow during the 2016 election cycle. The problem is that he's got this enormous following and he's ginned up enough doubt about, frankly, the integrity of America's institution that that he's created a, a kind of ability to, I think, to some degree, protect himself from that. But I, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to decline over time. I, I think the answer, ironically enough, was something that John McCain wanted Right, right at the beginning of the Trump administration, he wanted a House-Senate Joint Commission similar to the 9-11 Commission, uh, bipartisan, that would take a global look at all of this and say, okay, what happened, what went wrong, and what can we do about it? That's not a commission that could prosecute anybody, but if, if we're ever going to get to the bottom of what, went, what happened and what has happened and what is continuing to happen during the Trump administration, if I were able to design a plan that I wanted pursued, I would do two things. I would say, let's let Cy Vance see where he goes with his investigations and potential prosecutions. And the other thing I would do is I would say, let's take a close look. Forget about Trump for a minute. You know, we need to figure out what it is about this situation that allowed so many of the people around him to become enablers. To give you kind of an illustration, more than 20 of Nixon's lawyers in Watergate either suffered some kind of, of disciplinary action as a result of their roles in Watergate, either the break-in or the cover-up. And the, by, by that, I mean they were censured by their bar associations or, in, in some cases, went to jail, uh, like John Dean, John Mitchell, Ehrlichman, Halderman, those guys. If, as everyone says, and if, I, as I believe, what, what has have been happening during the, during the Trump administration with respect to various types of, of corruption and wrongdoing, particularly as it relates to the undermining of democracy, is worse than Watergate. You hear that phrase all the time. This is worse than Watergate. This is worse than Watergate. Well, you know what? Then guess what? There are criminals surrounding him who can be prosecuted. Some of them already have, um, and some of them are talking. 
uh, Michael Cohen, uh, Manafort's not talking, Stone will never talk, Flynn, there are already people who are convicted felons. There are more out there, I believe, and I think that one way to think about this would be to say, well, let's, all right, let's just take a close look at what some of these other people did and how, if at all, they did things that enabled unprecedented wrongdoing by the chief executive of, of the nation. Well, since you mentioned Watergate, I can't resist before we conclude today, going back to William Goldman's summary line, which is in the screenplay, wasn't in the original book, follow the money. And when you look at Donald Trump and you look at this timeline you set up, at times it's just comical. There, there was one item I just have to bring up. The highest price ever paid for a house in America was that from a Russian oligarch paid Trump $95 million for a house. He never moved in. It was later torn down. Trump made like a $50 million profit on the deal. It's just, it's, just, it's astounding. So ultimately, this is all going to come out. You know, I don't know when it'll come out. I mean, I don't know if I'll live to see the end in that sense. But historians are eventually going to get to the bottom of this, I think. And when they do, it's going to be a really ugly story. It's going to be a really, really ugly, dark chapter, I think in American history. For those who say, well, we, we all need to sort of uh, come together and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, to that point of view, I would offer this counterpoint. Number one, boy, you sure don't see much of that happening on the Republican side of the aisle right <laughs> no, now as sure during don't. the transition as Mitch McConnell rams through, tries to ram through, you know, more Trump stuff. You certainly don't see that coming from the White House, where Trump is doing everything he can to hamstring Biden not only in, in foreign affairs and, and international affairs, but even to the point of pandemic, to the point of the life and death of Americans, he's not willing to cooperate in a transition that would allow, for example, the smooth, however smooth it's going to be, uh, distribution of a promising vaccine. He's willing to let Americans die for revenge. It's a new definition of, of scorched earth. But the second thing I would say about it is, so one would be to say, well, yeah, okay, well, we have to be better than, than they are. And to which I say, well, that might not be possible. They're not entitled to anything by way of uh, sort of a break, if you want to look at it that way. But I think there's an even more fundamental point here. And that is, in order to really purge the poison in, that has really currently infected the American system, and I don't blame Trump for all of it, but it, but there's no question that he's made it um, orders of magnitude worse in terms of division, in terms of exploiting divisions, in terms of enabling hate groups, empowering hate groups, made it all inordinately worse. The only way you can purge yourself of that is with an accounting. You've got to hold people accountable for what they did. If it was just morally wrong, fine, but let's call it out. But if it's, if it, as a, I suspect, in across a wide range of, of activities, not limited to Russia, there is corruption and illegality up and down and throughout the ranks of this administration from self-dealing relating to the, the Trump Hotel to whatever else is going on. There are just so many things that just cry out for how do we cleanse ourselves? How do we cleanse democracy of what is, it, what is really a, at this point a poison? And I think you have to go at it hard and aggressively. If nothing else works, just put it out there so people can then say, well, okay, I see all that. But I still love the guy that it is, as I've always thought um, and increasingly believe, that this is really an, uh, akin to a cult. We owe it to our next generation to, to do what we can to cleanse America from whatever it is that, is that is infecting us and get to the bottom of it. That doesn't mean you can't do it in a way that's civilized. It doesn't mean you go out and you, and you do all kinds of terrible, violent things. You should not do that. 
but you've got to demonstrate to people that the systems of justice and that the rule of law still works, and it still works in America. Well, we certainly join you in those thoughts, and I hope that when 2021 comes, you may come back on the show and talk about how things are progressing. Happy to do it anytime. Our guest has been Stephen J. Harper. His excellent timelines on coronavirus can be found at BillMoyers.com. And his comprehensive timeline on Trump and Russia can be found at News and Guts, a website run for Dan Rather. Thank you for your time again, Stephen Harper, and, and let's, let's speak again. My pleasure. Thanks, Doug. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more. Stick around. <laughs> 